If you want to know why your digestion is likely the number one most important factor in determining your overall health and longevity, then this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show is for you. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you will hear the real world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master their health productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. To you or me, it could be classified as indigestion, bloating, or gas, but to my four-year-old son, it's simply a tummy ache. Often overlooked and seen as yet another inconsequential symptom of eating or drinking too much of the wrong things at the wrong times, or maybe another stomach bug trying to invade. As my mother used to say, I had a sensitive stomach but it was actually a sign. A sign that my body was giving me and that your body gives you if necessary. An expression of imbalance, a consequence of disagreement within your body and its current physiological and biochemical terrain, whether it be good, bad, or ugly. The digestive system, the GI tract, the gut, our second brain, our tummy, Call it what you will, but the gut, or the literal tube connecting mouth to anus, in concert with a number of synergistic organs, like the liver and gallbladder and pancreas, as well as symbiotic organisms, well over 300 trillion in fact, is an unequivocally crucial part of our health and daily function. Today, I'm super excited to share with you gut health expert, John Brisson, as we share elements of our own personal journeys, his far more traumatic and significant than my own, yet both crucial in igniting our passion for all things digestive system health as an integral part of any effective health and healing plan. In this interview, we cover a myriad of topics related to the gut, beginning with a nasty bacterial infection in the stomach called H. pylori, why it was so significant in our own respective healing journeys, and the number of downstream effects related to H. pylori symptoms, including low stomach acid and nutrient malabsorption. As we move down the digestive canal, we'll discuss the prevalence of gut disease, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, as well as a breakdown in bacterial population control, leading to maladies like Candida and SIBO. Lastly, we'll discuss the mind-body-gut connection and maintaining a healthy relationship with food, as well as a couple ways to support your gut with supplementation. As you'll hear right away, John is an extremely smart and biochemically literate clinician, so hang in there if you get lost in some of the technical jargon as I think I'm able to bring things back to basics as much as possible and will guarantee that you walk away from this interview with some solid clinical pearls to help you start to improve your gut health today. Make sure to check out the show notes for all of the relevant links as well as special supplement link for you to purchase your practitioner grade products at a 20% discount. And if you enjoy listening to the show, then do me a huge favor. 
please leave a positive rating review in iTunes so that I can get more eyes and ears on our content, continue to bring on the most knowledgeable guests, and help more people in the process. Listen, guys, this show has really been years of hard work and effort, and and every positive star and rating that I see just reinforces my drive to continue this journey with you. And if you want to talk about working with me personally, I'd love to chat. Just schedule your free nutrition strategy call over at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. That's it for today. Here's John and enjoy the show. John Brisson, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. How you doing, brother? Doing well, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. I've been really, really excited for this interview after kind of doing my homework and listening to some of the podcasts you've been on, um, reading some of your materials, your Fix Your Gut Supplement Guide. I knew right away just from, from listening to you that uh, we would absolutely resonate and I knew that you were absolutely an authority in the field. And so uh, it's just an honor for me to be able to share your wisdom and knowledge with my audience. Uh, so, uh, John, tell me what's been going on in your world, man. What are you working on right now? Uh, nothing really. I mean, I guess that more than just, you know, try to get more blogs out, trying to do more videos, try to start the fixture gut podcast up with my partner, Jason Hooper. Great. Our last episode I'm going to publish soon was on Alzheimer's disease. Of course, if it's linked to, um, herpes simplex one, which seems to be overlooked by conventional medicine, um, but they seem to be more and more research coming out up about that now and also the effects of the gut with Alzheimer's disease too as well. Um, but yeah, it's usually I'm trying to get more blogs out. I'm going to have a blog up in the next week about metformin. A lot of people don't realize that metformin also has an effect on the gut bacteria and maybe why the diabetic drug uh, may help against um, type 2 diabetes. And it may be just because of the changing, increasing of acromantia, uh, for example, um, that may be one of the major focuses of why it works. I know it's also used as a longevity drug, but in some people, you know, there have been cases where metformin does, you know, mess up their microbiome. Yes, for uh, sure. Too as well, um, you know, causes diarrhea. Uh, I know my father-in-law took it for a while, and every time he would take metformin, he had to run to the bathroom. Yep. Yeah, I've, I have I have a lot of people that I've spoken with and, and clients that I've worked with that have gone down the metformin route from a, and not necessarily from a type 2 diabetes standpoint, because it's becoming very popular in yes. this sort of anti-aging longevity community. And even in, uh, in with respect to physique and weight loss and uh, body composition, um, it's becoming very popular. So what you're saying is, is because of the changes that are associated in the gut uh, bacteria from the metformin, it's advantageous to be taking. It can be, yes. It depends on the person. I've seen sure. uh, uh, um, cases where it has helped um, by incre- you know increasing acromancy or increasing uh, uh, vibro, which you know vitrovibro produce uh, short chain fatty acids like butyrate and bifido. But in other pe- pe- people too who may have issues with uh, provitella dysbiosis, for example, um, metformin use can make it worse, and they end up sure. having overgrowth of provitella, and it ends up causing uh, it, digestive issues with fat consumption. Um, so it really just depends on the person. But it, you know, metformin it has both good and bad sides. Just most people talk about only the good, and very few actually talk about the negatives associated, especially when it comes to the gut. Well, it's cool that we're actually you know scratching the surface with a lot of the research now beyond just the the type two diabetic effects. I know there's research coming out, metformin regarding um, 
sort of the impact on muscle tissue synthesis used around training windows and whether it's you know beneficial or not and and so it's very interesting i mean it's just very interesting to see the scope that this drug that this pharmaceutical drug um, has the potential to affect Oh, very much so, Ben. I mean, it's also, it's interesting how many medications that we look at or that we take that we have to look at also from the perspective of how they affect the gut as well. I know most people are well aware that protopulp inhibitors can affect the microbiome more than likely in a negative way because bacteria do have a proton pump. So do our mitochondria. So can also and mitochondria and just, well. uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just yes. to clarify, when you say proton pump inhibitors, you're talking about like acid reducing drugs like, um, like Nexium and, and, um, Prilosec, the Prilosec, yeah, and, val and and those types of things. Yeah, yes, very much so. Um, Prevacid, Prilosec, right. Nexium. Um, Larry Cable Guy used to be the the sponsor for Prilosec. You see, is up on you know TV. You can eat whatever you want as long as you're taking a PPI. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, and it does. I mean, stomach acid has you know has a purpose. There's a reason why our body produces stomach acid more than just to help break down our food. You know, hydrochloric acid more than just to to, to, to activate pepsin and activate uh, protease enzymes. Um, it does also keep, it's a first line of defense of the food that we ingest because everything we eat has a certain amount of bacteria. Even if you cook something well done, it's still going to have bacterial exposure from the plate, fork and your hands and, and everything else. So the, the stomach acid acts as a barrier to keep pathogens in because many pathogenic bacteria, including H. pylori, cannot really survive in, in an acidic environment. Well, the stomach the acid specifically uh, the hcl h pylori is something that i want to dive in a little more extensively in a bit and what i'd love to do is i'd love to take a step back with you john and and find out a little bit more about you and and you know you're obviously such a, a smart and um well-trained clinician with a lot of time and experience and so i'd love to find out kind of what was the impetus for you to jump into this journey why is it now that you're focusing extensively on gut health and maybe you could just briefly take a step back with us there yes um well ben i had been sick all my life i was born three months premature back in 1985 um had asthma and allergies growing up as as a kid um severe asthma to a point where i missed kindergarten i uh, failed kindergarten should i say because i missed so many days um, and my appendix burst ruptured, um, in my, uh, teenage years, uh, had to go back and had to have abscesses clean from that. you doing a peritoneal wash and later a hernia mesh put in. And I, you know, I had digestive issues off and on, even though I had, you know, severe digestive, you know, intestinal surgeries and everything, but it wasn't anything really major until I contracted H. pylori, I wish I, at least I think I did. Yeah. Um, at, at a, my grandmother-in-law had a fish fry and it must have <laughs> contaminated water, I think, uh, being out in the country or what. But for the first time, even, you know, after I had all those surgeries and everything, um, then I, I did not know what gastritis was. Um, yeah. And my stomach just burned. It just burned for the first time. Yeah. I was like, what is going on here? And so I started going to the doctor and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And and I developed silent reflux, uh, possibly from taking lisinopril, which is an ACE inhibitor, it's a blood pressure medication that I was taking for borderline blood, high blood pressure at the time. And uh, deplete zinc, a lot of people aren't aware of that the ACE inhibitors deplete zinc. And in men, that can lower testosterone levels. And when right. you have lower testosterone levels, your immune system doesn't function as well, among other things. Um, so I, I started becoming susceptible to uh, Epstein-Barr and, and, and varicella viral reactivation. 
And so I developed silent reflux uh, because of both that and the H. pylori. And it took me years through all the research that I was doing um, through Fix Your Gut. At first was to, to try to help myself. And then I realized, well, if I'm collecting all this knowledge, maybe I can help other people. So I, I met a good friend of mine, uh, Titus Wilson, who, who helps uh, – run fixture gut with me um we met on the bulletproof forums me and him and uh jason hooper who does a fixture gut podcast with me and uh titus is he's talked about his sister uh had a very rare uh, condition uh called a cardi syndrome and uh her the hemisphere or corpus callosum wasn't formed uh correctly um which you know people have had their corpus callosums the part that you know connects the brain hemispheres together uh mm -hmm. cut uh to prevent it against seizures um, in the past, but for her, because of other brain abnormalities and everything, it caused her to be severely uh, physically and mentally handicapped. Um, but I thought maybe if we could reduce the seizures and get her immune system under control using CBD oil and, you know, and sunlight exposure, proper circadian rhythm and a few other things, maybe she'd start to improve. And, you know, she has somewhat, she's actually showing emotion and smiling now and everything. And, and I do think a lot of her handicap has to do with her brain costly being, having seizures previously in the past that aren't really occurring anymore because of those methods. So, you know, with him, we decided to form Fix Your Gut. And then, of course, with my own issues, I had a son who, uh, who was born with an extremely rare medical condition called congenital myopathy with excess muscle spindles. It was six, he was six diagnosed in the world with it. Mm. Uh, my middle child, Abel. And, um, of course, they, you know, they had no idea about the disease. They said he wouldn't live uh, past a couple of months, if, if that. Um, I remember the local um, doctor that was head of the neonatal unit, Kafer Valley, I won't give out his name, told me it would probably be better off then if, if my son had would just pa had passed away in the womb. Um, oh, it's awful. Suffer so much. So they transferred him to UNC. They did a, a muscle biopsy. Um, at the Mayo Clinic, one doctor happened to see something very similar to what my son had at the time. And he goes, well, I think it's kind of related to Costello syndrome, which is HRS gene mutation. Uh, so maybe it's this condition. So they call it, you know, what I mentioned earlier, the acronym is CMEMS. So we took him home. Um, he was actually on a ventilator at the time. And by miracle, another way I can explain it, um, he coughed up. The, the ventilator tube when my wife and I had made the decision to take off uh, him off of ventilation. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, he was able to breathe better off the ventilator than on it. Um, so th there's no medical explanation for that. His lungs should have atrophied for the months that he was on the ventilator. His muscles should have atrophied. Um, but he did it. And so he took him home on hospice, and he started actually recovering. Uh, then he started uh, getting on the mend. Um, I started doing a, horm a homemade formula with him, um, and he started to get a more muscle tone. Uh, but there was a nutritionist there at UNC Chapel Hill who did not think that he was gaining enough weight, even though the nurses uh, didn't want him to, or the doctor, should I say, didn't want him to get too much weight because of the effect of weight could have had on his cardiovascular sure, system. Uh, sure, sure. Um, so we followed her, and eventually, you know, she was like, "Well, you must not be feeding; it must be the homemade formula." So we're going to contact CPS if you don't, you know, switch to regular formula and feed him normally. And I was scared, you know, even all the nurses were behind us, but I was younger and I was scared, and I capitulated. So we, uh, they put him back on regular formula. And of course, he's being fed through a G tube. Uh, he started aspirating, 
And they didn't think it was aspiration. They thought it was just his, his condition getting worse. Uh, and he kept hospitalizing and the hospitalizing, they feed him less and he'd get better. And then he'd come and back. And he kept feeding him too much. Yep. So he kept aspirating and it took about six months for them to finally realize that that was what was wrong. And by then he had already been back on the ventilator and had almost died one time in the hospital or code blue and not being able to breathe and everything. So he took him home. He was on ventilation again, um, but he started to recover from that. And sadly, a couple months after that, he had a pulmonary embolism from the previous trauma that was done to him through the ventilation and previous traumas done to his lungs, and he passed away. Um, mm, from I'm so that. sorry. Um, so I had learned a lot from trying to help him. He lived the longest with any child of his condition. He did not die from heart failure uh, because of mitochondrial support and circadian rhythm. Um, his heart, when they took him off, uh, we were heading on the top of the rooftop at UC Chapel Hill. Um, his heart beat for good without him actually breathing for a good 10 to 12 minutes afterwards. His heart was so strong. Incredible. So, um, unlike the, any of the other children, he didn't die from cardiomyopathy. Um, so because of him, you know, and because of, I've, I lost both my parents when I was young. I lost my mom to systemic lupus. Uh, when I was seven, I lost my father to hepatitis C when I was 18. Uh, because of my own troubles and trials and tribulations, I started to fix your gut with all the knowledge I had just, just to help people. I mean, there's over 230 free blogs on the website. If anybody emails me and they can't afford my book, I'll send you a copy for free. Um, and that's why I started it all. And I started it all just because I know what it is to be sick. Yep. I know how conventional medicine could become a trap. And I'm not saying conventional medicine isn't needed. There are times where it is needed, like diagnostic medicine and proper surgery and, and trauma-based care. Sure. I think for many people with, with, with chronic diseases, it fails them. You know, clearly through all the trauma in your life, through all your own personal experiences, you've learned so much. And, and I know that you've been able to help so many people along the way. So, you know, I mean, it's cliche to say everything happens for a reason, yes. and, and, of course, but I know that, you know, I'm confident that the world's a better place because of the position that you're in and the uh, the knowledge and experience that you have today, um, especially because I resonate so much with the things that you talk about from reading through your blog and listening to the podcasts and, and so much so that I know the audience is in good hands listening to you and being able to consult with you as well. So I, John, I thank you so much for sharing that, that story with us. Um, something that you talked about resonate very much with me. Um, and that is the uh, H pylori diagnosis, which part of the reason um, that I do what I do and started to dive into clinical nutrition and study functional medicine was because of some of the gut issues that I struggled with um, as a teenager. And starting from the age of about 15, I had terrible, terrible acid indigestion and um, IBS type symptoms. And I'd throw up all the time. And the doctors had me on, you know, multiple different antacid drugs, um, and did, uh, you know, did the whole endoscopy. So this was like in the late 90s, did the whole, or mid mid 90s, did the whole endoscopy thing where they put a video camera attached to a tube and put it down your throat when you're sedated so that they can video and actually, you know, physically see the lining of the uh, stomach, the stomach lining to see what's going on, whether it's inflamed or whatever. And, um, 
you know, they, for me, they couldn't figure out uh, what was going on. I mean, yes, it was inflamed. So it had this sort of gastritis uh, going on, but they didn't know what it was and, and sort of left me in limbo and, you know, made me kind of figure out, it forced me to kind of figure out what was going on on my own or, and it took a long time for me to figure things out. But along that journey for me was learning more as much as I could about nutrition, learning about the foods that I could and couldn't eat and, you know, what triggered me and what didn't. And, and all the while dealing with like what you talked about is this intense burning, awful sort of, uh, this burning in this epigastric region that I dealt with until I was about 20, uh, 25 or 26 when finally it was diagnosed through functional medicine testing that it was uh, this indeed this H. pylori infection that I treated then herbally and then from there was it eradicated it and and then worked to kind of rebuild the gut and um, so you know that was really for me was the impetus for for creating BSL nutrition and for kind of doing what I do. Uh, and so I absolutely resonate with you there. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your story. I mean, that's the thing about H. pylori, even to this day, that even when it, we'll talk about, you know, it was first discovered by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, two Australian doctors back in, I think it was early, early 80s, should I say, um, around 82. They, no one took them seriously. I mean, with most things when it comes to uh, diagnostic medicine, when it comes from a microbiological level, most of the researchers are probably 10 to 20 years ahead of most standard, you know, practice medicine. Sure. Uh, even when it comes to ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease being tied to mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, which is a bacteria found in ruminant animals like cows and, and goats. Um, so with H. pylori, it took Marshall to literally isolate H. pylori, make a concoction, drink it, then give himself gastritis for him to even be taken and treat himself with antibiotics for him to be even taken seriously. So, you know what, would you, could you explain just, just very briefly exactly what H. pylori is? Yes. Um, Heliobacter pylori is, is uh, gram negative, um, meaning that it has endotoxins within its cell wall. Um, as well as, I, I guess, too, if you're talking about a gram stain in, in, in and of itself, um, it doesn't, when you, when you gram stain uh, bacteria, if it doesn't turn, uh, it doesn't remain violet, then it's gram negative. If it, if it has violet uh, coloring, it's gram positive. Mm -hmm. um, so gram positive bacteria don't have endotoxins or LPS, what they call lipid polysaccharide. Um, they have other uh, toxins uh, associated with them. But the cell wall of a gram-negative bacteria is this toxic LPS, Lipopacus polysaccharide. So H. pylori falls under uh, um, a, a certain classification of bacteria known as proteobacteria. And proteobacteria, they, the main difference between proteobacteria under the phylum compared to a lot of your other bacteria whether it's formicutes or, or bacterioids, is that proteobacteria, the endotoxins that they, that they contain are very, very potent. They're stronger mm -hmm. than most other gram-negative bacteria. So you, you've got common uh, infection bacteria that you see within proteobacteria like Campylobacter, uh, your right. pestis, which causes the Black Plague, uh, Vibro cholerae, which causes cholera, E. coli, Shigella, Salmonella. You know, these are very, very 
very strong infection-causing bacteria. Um, so H. pylori falls under this proteobacteria. So it's very, very virulent. And the toxins that it has um, can cause, you know, very strong destructive capabilities on the human body when it's, a, when it's dysbiotic flora. So when it enters the stomach, let's say that you, then let's say you drank contaminated water, which seems to be a strong source of H. pylori, even uh, city filtered water. Um, uh, the famous activist, oh, what was her name? Julia Roberts played her in a movie, Erin Brockovich. Um, she's t uh, talked about a lot about a lot of this about them using chloramine in, in water uh, purification sources in urban centers and how the use of chloramine, which chlorinated ammonia, doesn't work as well as chlorine. So H. pylori can actually build up huge biofilms in these pipes. Um, and, and since they, they have to do a chlorine flush, if you live in a metropolitan area, like twice a year to kind of break wow. biofilm, it gets released. So if you're not filtering your tap water, you're, you're drinking it. Um, and so that, that's one way a person can get H. pylori. So if your stomach doesn't have it, okay, so let's say you drink it and your stomach doesn't produce a lot of acid, whether because you've been taking some antacids or you're elderly, um, among other things, the H. pylori can get into the stomach and it can, now it can't survive in acid. So if you have like a normal acidic stomach, it, it'll, it'll die or it'll pass through. It can't attach itself to the wall of your stomach, but let's say it is able to. Well, once it attaches itself to the wall of the stomach, it starts producing an enzyme called urease, and your stomach produces urea uh, during normal digestion, and the urease enzyme cleaves the urea and produces ammonia. Now, ammonia is very basic, so it starts neutralizing the stomach acid so the H. pylori can live and start proliferating and start making, forming more colonies within the stomach. So when that starts to happen, the endotoxins that the H. pylori shed from their cell, your immune system reacts to it because it's not toxins are not a good thing. You know, your body's like, well, right. we have to do something with this. So it starts to, and there are certain virulence factors. You probably have heard of Siga A and Vac sure. A, different uh, virulence factors of reason why a person with certain strains of H. pylori get gastritis. Another certain person gets ulcers, another person... Brain fog or... Exactly. And it has to do with those different virulence factors, okay? So that's, that's the difference between all those virulent factors is because, is because of the certain different species that we have of H. pylori. So with the H. pylori in and of itself, if you end up getting it, some people... Like some people could be asymptomatic, Ben. There's studies, but it, it's 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 so it's this it's this bacterial infection that kind of lives in the stomach, but it's actually yes. it's it's actually quite common, is it not? Yes, up to eighty to ninety percent of uh, it depends where you live too. For example, in Mexico, up to 90 percent of the population have H. pylori. Now, does that mean that you know they're going to have symptomatic H. pylori right. and it's a problem? No, not at all. It depends on there's many different factors of reason a person reacts to a bacteria. Uh, negatively or positively um but in people that they do react negatively to h pylori can cause ulcers and stomach yeah, cancer and right reflux and whore, you know sulfur issues and histamine issues and just a wide variety range of problems that it can cause i i think one of the things that was so a life altering for me was understanding that some of the for me personally some of the implications of the h pylori infection and now whether it was that the h pylori itself was suppressing my own stomach acid production or whether it was just you know i was a teenager and and stressed out and eating crappy food and and maybe some of the other medications that i was on um 
at the time or, or whatever it was, but it was kind of a perfect storm. But the, the implications of the fact that once stomach acid is suppressed, then it's just a myriad of other things that are going to happen with your digestion and ultimately your health. So what I'd love to do is talk about uh, the importance of HCL in the stomach in terms of our digestion of food and, and, and kind of how it, you know, how it leads into the rest of our digestive processes. Yes, but I mean, that's a very important question. So hydrochloric acid, your stomach starts producing it for the peritoneal cells of the stomach. Um, pretty much, actually, it, it, there is actually a circadian rhythm motion to it as well, too as well, but I guess it's going a little bit too deep in that regard. But your body's producing it even when you're not eating to a certain degree to kind of keep a set pH of around anywhere between two to four, um, just at baseline. Your body wants to try to keep that pH level to, you know, reduce microbes. And yeah. know, there are some microbes that live in the stomach. The stomach's not sterile. There's no part of the, the body that's sterile, as you're well known. Not even the brain is sterile. The well, sterile. You know, there's no part of the body that's sterile. And, and I think it's important to acknowledge that the stomach is supposed to be a very acidic environment. I mean, you need it to be acidic to break down your food, especially your animal proteins that you're consuming. Very much so. That, that's very much so. That's one of my main issues with the whole alkaline water movement. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that you shouldn't drink spring water. And I'm not saying that your water shouldn't, you know, be pure, you know, and, and I'm not saying that at all. I believe when Jack Cruz is talking about the purity of water being a very important thing, it is. Don't get me wrong. But you don't want to drink, you know, pH water of nine when you're about to sit down and eat your steak. That's one of the most ludicrous things that you can do. Right. <laughs> now, if you want to watch, you know, if you want to drink a little, consume a little bit of alkaline water hours after, you know, like five, four, four hours after a meal or while you're fasting, doing a water fast or whatever to some degree, fine. That is in moderation. That's okay. Okay. But ingesting it on a regular basis and ingesting it with meals, especially meals containing protein, that's the farthest thing for you want to do. It's the whole acid alkaline, you know, nonsense that's on the, the web that you can. <sighs> I'm with you. I'm with just, you, buddy. It, 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 I don't, for digest, okay, there's certain parts of the body that are sick and there's parts, it's like the small intestine. The blood, but the blood, main, the blood maintains the, the acid yes. alkaline balance and that's what's important. It's not just because you're eating alkaline foods, all of a sudden you're making your body alkaline. Like you're, you're, that's what homeostasis is. That's what, that's what the body does. Yes, I know. And it's ludicrous to me. I mean, people are like, well, I eat lemons and they're alkaline, right? Well, yeah, the pancreas has to, you know, the more acidic your stomach chime is, the more uh, sodium bicarbonate has to be released by your pancreas into the duodenum and a little bit more that gets released into your bloodstream, just a real little bit because it's between that 7.2 to 7.4 your body maintains it at. So most of the time when people are, are, are checking their pH, I don't go on a little bit of tangent, but they check their pH pH on your urine, you know, that's from your diet. <laughs> that's not it doesn't, right. It, it's and and not. it's almost irrelevant. But so so what are some of the things? So we we understand like this this stomach acid, this hydrochloric acid that our body naturally produces in the stomach is incredibly important. And and there's a number of things that can impact uh, our our own body's production, like H. pylori as the, this the stomach infection, like you and I both experienced. Now, what are some other things that because okay okay so because if if we are not producing enough stomach acid, then we're going to be consuming food and it's not going to be properly broken down. 
No, it's not, especially you know, certain enzymes that break down protein. You know, pepsin's not going to be produced uh, uh, properly enough. Um, our, our stomach is going to be uh, more of a, hospitable, uh, a, a hospitable place to a lot of these pathogenic bacteria that prefer a higher pH. You know, our stomach does have some bacteria in it, like lactobacillus strains, the peptostreptococcus, and stuff, stuff that's supposed to be there, but H. pylori is not supposed to be there. So an acidic right. stomach, it really can't survive. And, and so, it, or if it, if it does, it burrows itself and becomes inactive in the mucosa of the stomach. Um, and that's why some people like me, for example, uh, every so often, if you have H. pylori, it could definitely be reactivated again because it's almost impossible to kill every colony forming, forming unit of a bacteria. Yeah. You know, most of the time you're left with a real little bit remnant of it. It's not like a virus. Uh, it's not like getting over the rhinovirus, for example. You know, some viruses do stay in the body, like Epstein Barr. Um, they live in the the cranial nerves, but so it, it's it. Stomach acid does I mean multiple things. Like you said, breaks down foods and it, acti it activates certain enzymes. Um, it's important for the migrating motor complex too, as well, because. You know, as that the stomach becomes acidic, the small intestine gets ready. You know, like I said, mentioned earlier, for the pancreas to, to, to release sodium bicarbonate, for the for the gallbladder to release bile if you have one. If not, the liver dumps it. Um, but the is for, for the motion of the migrating motor complex, the four waves of peristalsis that happen through your entire digestive system. A proper pH of the stomach for you know the pyloric sphincter to open up properly for the LES to start to tighten. Um, you know, all those, the, the migrating motor complex of the whole entire body, pretty much digestion in and of itself, a lot of it does hinge on proper pH levels of the stomach. Yeah. And, and so without that, you can start getting constipated and bloated and dysbiosis. And, and a lot of that comes from having, you know, either improper stomach acid production, which sodium is required uh, for the production of eight, uh, hydrochloric acid. You do need sodium. Uh, proper amount, good sodium now, like but but John, but John, sodium is going to elevate my blood pressure, and so I probably <laughs> should avoid it. Now, not... Ben, now come on, now, now. <laughs> that, I mean, that's one of the most ludicrous. I I, I wrote a, a blog about salt. Uh, it's uh, a great blog. Uh, it's a great one. And yeah. it, it just it irritates me so much. It's, it's it's within the margin of error that it, I mean, unless you're consuming like 20 grams of sodium a day, and then yes, of course, you know, it would start causing a potassium imbalance. But have you uh, have you read uh, what's it called, The Salt Fix by James D. Nicolantonio? I think so. I've also read Dr. Brownstein's book on salt too, yes. as well. But it's been a long time. Well, we won't go down that um, the, the sodium rabbit hole. It, it's um, except that to say that sodium is a good thing. Obviously it's individual dependent, but the whole kind of recommended daily allowance of like 2,300 milligrams is nothing. It is nothing. And, and most people need more sodium to be healthier, to, to, to experience optimal health. Absolutely. Jumping back into the stomach acid, what are some of the things that can suppress? So, you know, let's talk aside from these infections. Um, what are some of the things, just your average Jane and Joe, what are some of the things that can suppress their body's stomach acid production um, in general? Improper sleep and stress for one, okay. both of those can. They'll so have that's every single person. They'll um, have an effect on the proton pump <laughs> to some degree. Um, medications, you know, antacids, uh, proton pump inhibitors, H2 antagonists. Um, okay, so that's a really good point. So what about when we are told that 
Um, what about when we're told that, it, it, let's say we're experiencing GERD or having a hard time digesting our food and we're told that, okay, um, you need to take a acid suppressing drug. What's going on? Why, why would you? <laughs> that's the old, I mean, that's the old outdated look at reflux. You know, I believe most cases of reflux are caused by not having enough stomach acid right. production um, or having an elevated stomach pH, I guess is a, is a more scientific way of saying it. Uh, but yeah, in most cases that, you know, what, what does that lead to? It leads to upper gut dysbiosis. You know, you start getting bacteria in the upper gut that, 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 that happened with protein fermentation and, and your stomach has a slower gastric empty in time or for takes the time it takes for the food to, to exit the stomach into the duodenum. So you have fermentation in the stomach that's not normally there. Right. That produces excessive gas, which puts pressure on the, low, the lower esophageal sphincter and causes you to reflux into the esophagus. Or like me, if you had solid reflux, your upper esophageal sphincter doesn't work, so you reflux into your oral cavity. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that, what I had too. Yeah. That is the cause of reflux. It's not you don't your body makes too much stomach acid. That's again conventional medicine treating the reaction and not the initial problem to begin with. Um, I mean, there's other you know some people could have poor posture, some people could have hiatal hernias. All that's going right. to epigastric faster as well. Um, but I mean, for most people, it is having you know a lack of proper stomach acid production or a higher stomach yeah. elevated stomach pH causing that. Well, that's what I think is a really important point that I want to hit home here. And it's this is certainly not to bash conventional medicine. I mean, it, of course, it has plenty of faults. But but with respect to digestion, is I, what I want people to understand is um, that you're explaining so eloquently is that, you know, more often than not, it's not an overproduction of stomach acid. It's an underproduction, a hypo uh, chloridria, yes. right? An underproduction of stomach acid. Therefore, we need to do things that are going to help our body start to produce the right amount so that we can break down our food so that we don't get this overpopulation of, of bacteria or fermentation of, of food in our in the wrong places in our digestive system. So what do you do? And I kind of want to just finish up on, on um, stomach acid and then kind of move what can we kind of say move down the road? Cause I want to talk about some of these intestinal disorders, but what are some of the ways that you help people improve this element of the digestive process? It's really easy, Ben. I mean, I, I, I drink, you know, try not to drink as much water during meals. Obviously you do need some water for digestion, but I'd probably keep it to about four to six ounces if possible. Cause you're, um, cause if you drink too much, you're going to suppress that those, those digestive enzymes, that, that exactly. stomach acid. You're going to dilute your, your yeah. stomach pH. You Di do not dilute want to do that. Yeah. Um, maybe if you're having – one of the biggest signs for H. pylori, one of the biggest signs for lower stomach acid production is not being hungry in the morning. Per circadian rhythm, you're supposed to break – you're supposed to be hungry. Um, and so you're supposed to break your fast, um, which I know intermittent fasting and everything, and I, and I do do that. But usually I intermittent fast. You know, my last meal is before the sun goes down around 6, and my first yeah. meal is around 10, you know. Yep. So – it, 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 if you're if you're nauseous in the morning, you're just like one of those people where you're like, oh, I don't want to eat, which I was been before I got silent reflux. Is exactly how I was when I was yeah. having a lot of this. I I couldn't eat. I couldn't think of food in the morning. Just, I never ate breakfast. Never. That's yeah. usually a sign of having you know low stomach acid. So what you can do is is you can squeeze a fresh lemon in a glass of water if you're worried about it ruining the enamel of your teeth. Uh, you could use a, a straw, but a straw would put air into the stomach a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, juice of, of water, add a little bit of pinch of salt to it, a pinch of real salt. 
um, not Morton salt or salt full of additives or anything like that, but a pinch of just regular good salt in there, and that will help get the stomach acid production going properly. Um, eating acidic foods or bitter, you know, bitter type foods and meals, adding vinegars to your salads, eating arugula, uh, watercress, um, you know, eating bitter greens, that will start getting it moving too as well. Um, yeah. All of those are really good things. And also you could try a digestive bitter supplement. I like Urban Moonshine because they have one in apple cider vinegar instead of alcohol. That will too as well. Well, I was going to oh, say apple cider vinegar is a, a, a good one, yeah. Yep. But all of those will help. All of those will help lower your stomach pH and improve digestion for most people. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and and then as far as the supplement, uh, supplement do you, are you a believer in betaine HCL? Uh, in the right cases, yeah. Some people do need it. Um, I don't want a person to be on it forever, though, because the stomach will – the body kind of gets lazy with feedback loops and that right. if you're constantly pumping betaine in, the body's like, well, I guess I really don't have to activate the parotidal cells to produce any acid. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so you kind of only need to use it for a short period of time. And there are some drawbacks. If you have a severe H. pylori infection in the stomach and you start popping HCL – yeah, it's going to cause a big die-off reaction in your stomach, and you might get a lot of gastritis. So you got to kind of be careful with that. Yeah, um, if you've got some sensitive uh, yes, stomach lining, it, that could be pretty painful. Yes, it can. But other than that, yes, I do recommend BT and HCL. I have a blog and a video about it. I've used it personally myself. It just has to be done right like most things. You know, you don't want to start popping about 10 of them and <laughs> with every meal. And you don't want to be on it forever, too, because it's just like probiotics. You know, if, it, if you're on them forever, and it's, it might be helping or fixing your problem. But is it really if you're relying on this stuff? I mean, we should rely more on food and lifestyle changes and circadian rhythm for optimal health more than we should supplements. Hey brother, are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman, father, and husband? I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you wanna find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. So let's talk within the scope of digestive enzymes. So we'll not talk just about hydrochloric acid, but we'll talk about, you know, pancreatic enzymes and, and the things that help break down and, and maybe even, you know, ox bile and the things that help break down the carbohydrates and the fats as well. Um, but particularly the enzymes is that, you know, with respect to supplementation is that our food quality is so poor now, the soil quality is so poor that many of the foods that we're eating now are lacking a lot of the enzymes that maybe they once had especially with extended shelf life and stuff like that. What's your approach or sort of outlook with respect to supplementing with those enzymes? It depends. It's weird, Ben. Like for people with severe digestive issues, including myself, digestive enzymes never made a difference. I never felt any difference taken. Mm. It didn't matter if I took porcine derivative pancreatin or if I took uh, bacterial or yeast derived enzyme like digestive gold. You know, mm -hmm. I am a fan of them and I do recommend them and they do help people. It really just, it's get a subjective. Yeah. Um, I, I recommend for most people, 
you know, try to eat a varied diet within season and organic as much as possible to help with that. You know, try to reduce the stomach pH as much as possible too should help with that in theory as well as also proper intestinal motility. Um, I digestive bitters could also help with just endogenous enzyme production, triggering that too as well. Um, so I mean, with, with with digestive enzymes, it just it really depends. Like, do I think that the average person with intestinal discomfort or bloating or gas can it can it help them to take a digestive enzyme every so often, or especially someone who's like with inborn genetic lactase uh, production issues? Of sure. course. Um, but for so every- so so to be clear, that's that's people that do not. Um, naturally have the lactase enzyme that helps them break down dairy, uh, the, the lactose, that the enzymes that come in dairy. So they're, they're lactose intolerant. Is that correct? Yes. They're producing less of it. The gene isn't encoding the enzyme properly. So they produce less lactase, if any at all. Uh, so they have issues digesting ice cream, you know, which is, or milk, which has a lot of the milk sugar lactose in it. So simply um, for, so for someone like that, simply taking one of those enzymes could indeed be a game changer for them just because it will allow them to maybe live a little bit. Oh, very much so. Or some people with, um, gluten insensitivity, but not necessarily celiac disease could try DPP4, for example. Um, and maybe they won't react to, to gluten as bad if they go to a restaurant, they're not a hundred percent sure whether or not, you know, there's gluten inside the food or not. Now, if someone with celiac disease, I can't make that recommendation at all. I myself has celiac disease. Um, okay. but, I, but, but I mean, someone with gluten sensitivity, they DPP4 may help. Um, there's other different, there's many array, different type of digestive enzymes, papain, bromelain, bromelain, you gotta, then one, I guess one thing, I guess, as we're talking about this, one thing I do want to say then real quick is people with gastritis have to be, and ulcers have to be very careful when they take certain digestive enzymes, whether it's bromelain or papain or protease in a lot of these digestive enzymes, it can make the gastritis and ulceration worse from what I've seen. Um, so I do want to make note of that. Yeah, and obviously, if people are working with a medical professional and they're on PPIs, um, you know, you got to consult with your physician and don't, you know, if you're taking Zantac, don't start taking hydrochloric acid. No, <laughs> you're going to the purpose. <laughs> no, they're counterintuitive between the two. So you got to work through that. Um, so, with the increasing popularity in functional medicine, John. I feel like we are seeing, I feel like people are becoming a lot more knowledgeable or being kind of diagnosed. I'll I'll use that term loosely, quote unquote, diagnosed with more gut issues. And when I say gut issues, I'm talking about things specifically like candida um, or uh, SIBO as an example. Um, is, Is this something that you're seeing uh, in your practice is, are you having clients come to you with sort of the premonition that this is something that's already occurring that they're already dealing with? Yes. in large amounts and gastroenterologists have no idea how to properly diagnose many of them. Some of them do. Some of them do like Dr. Mark Pimitel and Dr. Allison Seibecker, but many of them have no clue, no clue. They're still labeling Ben Sibo uh, as IBS. Still mm-hmm. to this day, it, 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 even H. pylori, for example, for me, it took four tests. It took two right. endoscopes and two stool antigens. I still tested negative. I actually took five. The f- last time I was I test positive for the, the SIGA-A antibody on a GI MAP test. I f- had all the symptoms. I finally said, you know what? I've been battling this for seven years. I thought it was because of all the gastrointestinal surgeries I had. Might right. as well tackle H. pylori, and lo and behold, that's what it was. 
Um, so it's it, it, it's very frustrating because most people they go to their doctors and they're having you know bloating in the in the in the and, the, and around the belly button and and uh, maybe some diarrhea and they're like oh well it's just IBS well, no likely it's probably small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome and and what and, and what is that and maybe maybe you could yeah briefly describe that and sort of how we approach that yeah there's there's two different types of SIBO uh, well actually there's three actually um, there's a SIBO with constipation SIBO with, with diarrhea causing uh, and SIBO with which is alternating. Um, so usually SIBO with diarrhea is caused by some sort of bacterial dysbiosis that, that produces hydrogen gas mainly, um, and it'll end up causing diarrhea, um, bloating around the spotestinal region, uh, cramping, abdominal pain, uh, possibly reflux for some people. Uh, SIBO with constipation is caused by another single cell organism known as archaea, and it produces methane, um, and it usually is correlated with constipation, uh, abdominal pain and pressure, um, sometimes chronic constipation. I've, I've coached some people been, who've been, who have been um, constipated for 10 to 20 years. And at that point, usually it starts becoming more of a structural issue for being constipated for so sure. long, more than just a microbiome issue at that point. Um, then there's also hydrogen and sulfide SIBO, which usually causes an alternating SIBO of either constipation or diarrhea, uh, which is caused by bacteria that are able to reduce uh, sulfur, sulfur into hydrogen sulfide. So usually people in those cases, hydrogen has a slight smell of flatulence or gas. Hydrogen sulfide has a very, very foul smelling uh, flatulence, smells like rotten eggs. Uh, not to be confused with C. diff, with the flatulence is with C. diff infection, it smells like death. Um, and methane has no odor whatsoever uh, compared to, to, to popular culture. Uh, well, that's a good subjective questionnaire for your clientele right there. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are three different types of SIBO, um, and they all present with different type of microorganisms being the cause. They both have diff – all three have radically different approaches of how they should be tackled. Um, because our KR are, are resistant to many different types of natural antimicrobials and even antibiotics. Um, so it's, it's, it, and it can be difficult. SIBO, it, it is, it's, it's, it, so that's sort of, and, and this is beyond, well beyond the scope of my practice, but I've had multiple clients that have experienced, been experiencing um, this, these issues that have been sort of clinically diagnosed, whether it's through an actual MD or sort of an integrative MD practitioner, whether it's a naturopathic doctor, and but but nonetheless, it seems to be something that's very very difficult to treat. Yes, it can be because you got to tackle not only the microbiome but lifestyle, epigenetics. Um, circadian rhythm, motility, like it's like it can't just be just giving someone supplements right. and have them take this and you'll be fine because once you've reached that dysbiotic point, it's very – people have recovered. I've coached many people have. Sadly, a few people have it. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, once you have SIBO, it's, it's, it's almost a chronic disease once it reaches that, that point. Um, and that, that's one of the main issues with, with all of this, whether it's mainly conventional medicine, not so much natural medicine, is they kind of just treat it as gastrointestinal issues. And most gastroenterologists just like throw their hands up in the air. They do the same thing with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But I can't tell you how many people in my own personal life, one of my best friend's father, um, my son's former um, occupational therapist, who he almost, they're about to take out parts of his colon because he had ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Um, 
and once you you know you, you realize that well the cause uh, at least from what it seems i think about 90 percent of the cause of both of those conditions is this one uh, mycobacterium uh, that's found in ruminant animals causes a similar, like there's a disease in uh, ruminant animals called Johan's disease, and it causes the same exact symptoms of, of, of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. All Crohn's disease is a systemic ulcerative colitis. So, okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, okay. so you said, okay, so you said that there is a bacteria or a chemical found in ruminant animals so that in like cows and goats and animals that have multiple stomachs right that yes that there is a, there is a bacteria called mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis it is it, 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 mycobacterium is a type of ectinobacteria which ectinobacteria also another one is a very very nice probiotic known as bifidobacterium okay okay right so mycobacterium they're they're mobile they don't really move they're very slow growing i mean very slow growing okay and they may cause one of the most strongest diseases out there known as tuberculosis okay but if you ingest the, this ruminant animal whether you have some sort of genetic weakness to to the mycobacteria for some reason where your body doesn't fight it off so well or maybe you're taking some medication and your immune system wasn't working well or under stress for some reason, for certain people that have a weakness to this mycobacterium avian paratuberculosis, when they eat ruminant animal meat or when they ingest ruminant animal dairy, it, it causes them to either – their body either reacts to it, and that is the cause of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease when the body reacts to the bacteria of itself, or it's because they become colonized with this mycobacterium, and that's what causes the disease. Now, the question to you, Ben, might be, again, well, I eat steak – why don't I have it? Right. Well, again, there's an epigenetic, you know, a person's genes is made like, for example, Klebsiella, we know likely causes rheumatoid arthritis and alkalizing spondylitis and people with alkalinizing spondylitis, they have a certain gene called HLA B27. And that makes them susceptible for that bacteria to either colonize their spinal cord or for the body to react negatively to the endotoxins that Klebsiella produces and starts inflaming the spinal cord. So with mycobacterium, for most people with either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, the first thing you do is they have to give up all ruminant animal products. And for some people, right then and there, it stops it. So ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, yes. um, which seem to be, I don't know, increasingly common. I, I mean, becoming more common. And I don't know if it's just the diagnosis or, or what, but... Um, more and more people seem to be popping up with these digestive disorders. So regardless is that if this is present, then you're suggesting that it could be this bacteria found in these cows and goats and, and the foods that they produce. So, so, so meat, steak, and, and dairy products that by removing these, it, that's kind of the foundational step uh, for some of these people in alleviating these th this um you know disease yes and i'm not against meat consumption i myself am an omnivore <laughs> i want to make that clear yeah right <laughs> on. diet is so subjective and everybody gets mad and, and everything but i'm saying for these specific people yes removing a ruminant animal products in and of itself for some people with these conditions fascinating they, they might get improvement just from that and alone now it may require them to reduce mycobacterium and improve their microbiome through natural methods or long term or actually six month antimicrobial antibiotic therapy in certain cases if it needs be wow um and, but 
it, it, there is enough research, and the research has been around for 20 years, Ben. And now are they – now is mainstream medicine finally saying, okay, through the work of Dr. Uh, Harmon Taylor, which he's got a vaccine for MAP. I don't necessarily agree going that route in my opinion. Um, but he's saying, you know, the mainstream medicine is now looking at this and saying, okay, maybe this is the cause of these two conditions. I mean, that is absolutely numerous, fascinating. There's numerous research papers. You can Google it. You can Google it, ulcerative colitis – or Crohn's disease and MAP, and you will have find. You, um, have you done a blog or a video on this? Yes, yes, I've done a blog and a video, and it's in my it's in my book, Fix Your Gut, too. As and, well, I've coached many people with both conditions, and to and, and you've you've helped them um, overcome these. Yes, diseases. yes, both my sons, uh, in my own personal life, plus people I've coached, both my son's uh, uh, father, uh, friends uh, who's got uh, Crohn's disease. And my son's former occupational therapist, uh, both of them, and I mean, people I've coached as well, but I've known people in my own personal life of just doing these things and how they went in remission. So fascinating. I'll absolutely, um, for those of you guys listening, I'll make sure to include. Uh, I'll pull up that blog post and video of John, and and I'll make sure to include it in the show notes uh, below this interview, dude. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's that's certainly the first. I mean, I heard you mention it previously, but I I wanted to dig into it a little bit more. So I appreciate you sharing that. Now, do you think if there was sort of one thing that you could say regarding, so let's say someone um, is suffering from SIBO and they're sort of at wit's end. I mean, in terms of their clinicians don't really know, maybe they've been on multiple rounds of like these silly elimination diets to the, to the point where, you know, they're taking like this only doing, um, you know, what is it like powdered medical food powder for like a week? Oh, you're talk yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, the, um, what are they called? The elemental elimination, um, whatever they're, that, uh, they're doing elemental diet type. Powder. Elemental. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, outside of setting up a consult with you? I definitely look into the work of Dr. Jason Horlack, um, who is a naturopathic doctor out of Tasmania. Um, more and more, I align a lot of my research and a lot of my own conclusions with the, his own work. Of, it's not so much – like back in my early days of coaching people, I mean, eight, seven years ago, it used to be a lot of let's throw every anti natural antimicrobial in the kitchen sink at it and then rebuild your gut afterwards. Yeah, that worked. It doesn't work as good as trying to rebuild the gut by taking targeted prebiotics like acacia fiber and 2-FL, the human milk oligosaccharide, um, and, and, and trying to feed the gut, you know, broccoli sprouts for sulforane and carrots and, and everything, and trying to, to feed the gut while you are trying to reduce and, and, and a lot of the pathogenic uh, bacteria by possibly using natural antimicrobial methods of, of doing both of those at the same time. Um, so that, that's more of, of approach of what I'm trying to do now, Ben, and it seems to work a lot better. Yeah. Um, and again, like you mentioned earlier, diet is subjective. My goal, and it's not always one that's easily obtained is try to add foods back in. Because again, this is one thing I want to stress is the more you eliminate foods and the more you take them out of your diets and not all foods are equal. Some are worse than others. I'm not saying that, for example, you should go eat, you know, Wonder Bread or anything like that, even gluten, there's difference between organic fermented einkorn sourdough than there is Wonder Bread, okay? Right. But I'm just saying the more, in every case I've ever seen, Ben, the more you start taking away foods, 
the less diverse the microbiome gets. And in doing so, the more people start reacting to foods that they you right. don't add more foods back in. You continue taking them away. And that is not the goal as well as that's not how human diets have been. Even before agriculture or hunter-gatherer situations, you ate what you can find of many diverse and local in foods. So it, it's just it just boggles my mind of, you know, people that are on AIP and they're like, well, I'm cured. And I'm like, well, now what do you do? Are you <laughs> like, <laughs> are you, are you just on a, a limited diet for the rest of your life? Um, and your gut's still leaking, your microbiome's still in havoc, but you're able to control it on said diet. It's, you know? it's so hard because there's so many foods that are reactive for people. And so that they start to wean down on things that they, you know, know that they can be comfortable eating to the point where they're extremely limited. Yes. And then the stress involved with reintroduction and almost the premonition that certain foods are not going to be suitable for them or going to be reactive for them in and of itself is an issue. And, and that's kind of just what I'd love to touch on before we wrap things up is how much of our digestive health has to do and and just i think our health in general i'd love your personal perspective on this of of our health in general has to do with our thoughts and um you know our preconceived notions about what is or what isn't healthy it's it's kind of like a combination of the two ben it's kind of I do think we can set ourselves up for failure with self-fulfilling prophecies. That being said, I tried my best to will myself into better health and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a fine line, you know, like you don't, there's studies have shown that if you have a more positive outcome, you're, you know, whether it's faith or, or just, you know, belief system that you, you're more likely, you know, to end up surviving in some cases, but there are studies too to show if you have a more pessimistic out type outlook as well, more of a reserved outlook, you, that could actually also be a survival mechanism too. Um, so it's kind of like, I will say that if, you, if you're stressing on something, it's probably better that you try to do some sort of therapy or something to try, or, you know, trauma release exercise or, or, or activation of the parasympathetic nervous system or something to try to, to overcome that as much as you possibly can, because it will, you know, increase cortisol and cortisol is going to have an effect on your immune system an effect on your microbiome when you're stressing your own self out. But again, it's, it's like with conventional medicine, they don't look at any physiological causes or microbiome causes of mental health disorders. Okay. So everything is like here, take this SSRI in most cases. Right. Where in, in, in naturopathic, it can almost get to the point where a lot of, a lot of people are saying, well, you can will yourself into positive health. And that necessarily doesn't happen either. It's kind of like has to be a fine combination of the two where you got to work on yourself. Cause that's what the whole health approach is. It's more than just, I can't, so people are so ingrained of me going here, take this probiotic and your gut issues are going to get better. That's not what got you here in the first place. That's it. And that's it. And I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think that there's plenty of people that are searching just for, uh, even in, within the alternative or holistic or naturopathic community, that are still looking for a magic bullet and, yes. and, and don't necessarily want to do the work or maybe even don't necessarily want to heal. Don't necessarily want to get better. And that's, that's a problem is that they don't want to do the work 
And it's difficult. It's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's easy in the modern worlds that we live in to try to, you know, and I'm not, I don't do everything perfect. The Lord knows none of us really do, but it's no. about, it's about doing the right things when you can do them and do it. And the more often that you do them, the more often they become healthy habits. Like I don't not say to the point of orthorexia, like we were talking about earlier, you know, mm-hmm. a person could become so, that's why I've never written a diet book then because diet is so subjective. Absolutely. So subjective. And what might be another person's panacea might be another person's poison. Right. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have as far as nutrition. I think you would agree with me on that is we tell a person so much, don't eat this. Here's why. Instead of being like, well, it may not be as like, for example, you could say lectins, nightshades. We'll take nightshades. Sure. I seriously doubt a pepper is as bad as eating McDonald's, you know? So you kind of have to, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I know I that maybe it's a false equivalency because McDonald's is so bad, but <laughs> the way we like capsaicin for some people could be a very strong anti-inflammatory through activation of TRPV1 and they eat it and they feel amazing and it increases dopamine and it makes them happy. Or another person capsaicin can cause inflammation because of the same nightshade alkaloid capsaicin, you know, you know, so it, it just depends on the person. But by that same approach is, is, you know, maybe someone who generally does phenomenal with their nutrition and maybe the kind of their one thing is like once a month they get McDonald's and it has such a, maybe just a strong positive association with something that they grew up with that for them, even just mentally, it's, it's, it's just overwhelmingly positive in the grand scheme of things. And I agree with you though. I think you can, it just overanalyze anything to death to say, I can make every single food that you tell me to eat. I can, I can reframe it to make it bad for me. Yes. And that's a major problem. I mean, there's so many unknown variants that you're exposed to on a daily basis that you will never know. And I've known many people have developed orthorexia sure. you know, trying to control every aspect. And that's caused, their, that's caused more issues for them ever than the food they were trying to avoid initially in most cases in the first place. And I'm not saying people like me have celiac disease that I can, you know, I can overwhelm my, overwhelm my body and eat gluten. I'm not saying any of that. There's some people, there are some people who have to avoid certain foods. I understand that. But for a lot of people, it's almost became a trap. It's become a self-fulfilling trap. And, and, and we should be trying to get people to eat healthy, but at the same time, they have to enjoy their lives as well. Like when you go eat, dinner thanksgiving dinner or christmas dinner or holiday dinner with your family you know if, if you have celiac like me yeah i shouldn't eat the roll but that right. doesn't necessarily mean that i can't eat foods that i wouldn't normally eat through a healthy diet because it is a celebration with one's family you know and we've gotten away from that we told like you say with the mcdonald's yeah if you eat a healthy diet and exercise your circadian rhythm's good for a whole month and you know one month you have one bad meal we were doing better than 99 percent of the population out there right. you know i mean we food has should be enjoyed and good food does nourish the microbiome too as well you know those people that avoid if your diet is so limited your microbiome is also going to be limited too as well yeah i i think that there's just so much mental emotional um importance associated with with healthy gut and just healthy living in general and the role that community plays and and social support and and all that stuff that i talk about on the show so I'm glad that, you know, we're on the same page there. With that said, as you obviously have so much clinical knowledge on how to treat 
you know, many of these things. And what I would encourage our listeners to do is what I was going to ask you, John, is, is kind of to give us a few sort of um, maybe important supplements that you generally could talk to towards gut health. I don't know if that's something that you want to do. I was going to point people to your uh, fix your gut supplement guide on your website because it's a, I mean, it's a great resource. It's extensive, um, but it's a great resource. I don't mind doing it at all, Ben. I mean, first of all, magnesium. I mean, how many people, Dr. Caroline Dean, you know, how many people stress the importance of magnesium supplementation? Even if you eat a perfect diet, it's almost impossible to get enough as much as you need in in the stress-filled world that we live in. Yeah, I love talking about magnesium for sure. Yes, and you have. And I've definitely listened to you talk multiple times with with many different people. Um, So so magnesium, again, it's crucial. It's crucial for gut health, for proper regulation, proper motility. It's important electrolyte. Um, so reducing of stress too as well, reduction of, of, of cortisol. So magnesium, I, I can't sing its praises enough. It definitely helped me. And, and you like the um, chelated malate, is that correct? I prefer malate just because it worked well for me. But again, magnesium forms are subjective. Some people do well with glycinate. Maybe they need the extra amino acid glycine to help uh, re- reduce uh, uh, mental stress and worry and anxiety and improve their sleep. Uh, some people may need chloride to, to help with, with digestion and stomach acid production. Some people may need L3 and 8 to cross the blood-brain barrier, right. especially people with seizures. Yeah, it's definitely so, condition-specific. Yeah, it's there are some magnesiums that I say to avoid, which I'm pretty sure you do too. Like, I don't think people should load up on ma- oxide. magnesium oxide or aspartate with so much aspartic acid. You know, so I mean, there's certain things that I think people should avoid, but you know, malate. I do like malate. Malate was the one that personally made me feel amazing. What um, what what um what about uh, you know? So what about probiotics? And I don't want to go. I, I want to wrap this up in just a minute here. But but what about you know when we say generally probiotics? Like okay, if you're taking like I, I would say we consider a supplemental probiotic to be a good thing. Now, I know it's it's very condition specific, but let's say we're taking uh, an antibiotic for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, can absolutely be necessary under several circumstances. Um, what's your opinion of probiotics? They should be treated as medicine. Um, not so much that they require a prescription. I'm not saying that at all. But they, sh- they you should definitely, a person should research what probiotic they should take and how long they should take it and when they should take it. You should just go to Whole Foods and just pick up any other probiotic, random yeah. probiotic off the shelf and just start taking it. Because I've coached many people where they, that's actually how they started their digestive issues. Because um, because it's it's only a finite amount of strains of specific bacteria. And who knows if you're actually you know low in that specific, maybe you have a a decent amount of that specific bacteria and then therefore you're 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 creating an overpopulation or something like that or the, that too that, that definitely could happen it could contribute to SIBO with people with poor motility um if they have constipation you probably don't want to ingest frequent amount of, of probiotics because they can end up in their your small intestine instead of your colon um but yeah or you could be like for example me i was th1 dominant i favored more towards inflammation th1 is more inflammation th2 is more histamine related so i started taking lactobacillus planted plantarum 299v that's in jaro's ideal bowel support because on paper it sounds like a great probiotic there's many studies showing its efficacy and everything and so i started taking it and then and i started getting severe crippling leg pain from it increasing the the th1 the helper cells and increasing inflammation um, so people with histamine issues, lactobacillus plantarum 299V may be very beneficial for them. Uh, but for me, it caused me, made me very ill, very, very ill. 
so testing for your specific bacterial needs yes. is, makes a lot of sense. Yes, and I'm saying like if you had it, the, one of the safer uh, probiotics, in my opinion, is like Gut Pro. Um, there's no histamine producing strains and no delactate producing strains or custom probiotics. Um, the delactate free custom probiotic, you know, taking those, for example, if you had an antibiotic or if you take an antibiotic for a long term where you're hospitalized or something, for most people that probably won't cause them much harm and probably get a lot of benefit. Everything should be weighed on a risk versus benefit. Uh, in my opinion, and probiotics should definitely be one. As pyloridae, for example, if you're having dealing with diarrhea or you're afraid about getting C. diff, as long as you don't have severe histamine issues, could be or or, or suffer from severe constipation, you do very well too as well. Uh, Sacralardi, oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and so I definitely recommend uh, researching uh, Dr. Jason Horlick's work on individual probiotics and when they should be used. Um, I, I think for most people, it shouldn't be like you shouldn't take a probiotic that has like 20 strains in it or like equilibrium that has a hundred strains in it, you know, cause <laughs> for, for some, it should be a combination of a couple of strains, probably no more than 10, um, that, that, you know, that'll work very well for specific, uh, conditions. And one thing I forgot to mention real quick, Ben, it's real quick, uh, about salt yeah. is if you have H pylori and you suffer from TH17 dominance, where you're having both histamine and inflammation. How do we know if, is that a genetic test? You can't test. I mean, there is a cytokine test, but it's very expensive. Most of the time when it comes to, to helper cell dominance, you have to go based off of symptomology. Okay. Um, uh, but, uh, but if you are, so if you do have H pylori and you notice that salt makes your gastritis worse or makes you feel worse, there are studies have shown that people with TH17 dominant H pylori, triggering H pylori, salt can make the virulence much worse. So be aware of that. That's like the, one of the only few counter indications of salt that I know. Okay. Of. Interesting. Um, that's one thing I want to make, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I actually prefer more dietary changes and more prebiotic changes and circadian rhythm changes of influencing the microbiome been more than I do uh, probiotics uh, right. for most people. But I do recommend probiotics and I do recommend them to my, my clients for sure. I just think it has to be more individually tailored and you can't Great. just take a random one off the shelf and just start taking no, it. No, that's what I like to hear. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that's why I've, I've, I've moved away from even recommending um, any specific probiotics over the last several years uh, because of that and because we're starting to see all of these intestinal overgrowth and stuff like that. Um, let, why don't we do one more uh, supplement that kind of off the top of your head you think most people could benefit from, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I'd probably say zinc carnosine. Cool. Um, which is zinc uh, chelated to the amino acid L-carnosine. Um, it, there's multiple studies of it reducing zonulin and, 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 and improving uh, – uh, reducing intestinal permeability and improving the gut junctions from closing. Also works very well in people with H. pylori because zinc has an antimicrobial effect on H. pylori as well as, uh, you know, many males can be zinc deficient if you have low testosterone. That doesn't really increase body zinc very much. Most of the zinc carnosine because it's bonded with, uh, zinc is bonded with carnosine. It works directly on the mucosa of the intestinal tract, specifically the upper gut. Um, but yeah, there's one more supplement that I can recommend if you suffer from gastritis, ulcers. I mean, it's given by prescription for ulcers in Japan. Um, H. pylori, any type of upper gut issues, leaky gut, brain fog, anything like that. Uh, you might want to try zinc carcinoma. The is, there a, uh, is there a generally recognized dosage? Uh, it depends on which brand. I, I like Doctors Best. It's relatively inexpensive. I usually recommend uh, two capsules with each meal. 
Um, and I would also say that the only counterindication of it for it that I know of is some people it can make your gastritis worse, and we quite don't know what that is, but it's very rare. It's just if people have severe histamine issues, severe asthma and allergies and hives, cardicine does, as amino acid, does contain some histidine in it, so it can cause histamine issues for mm. those select people. Um, right. But other than that, it has been the one of the best supplements for digestive health, and it's helped many people, including myself, that I've come across with. Awesome, man. John, my mind is blown. It's going to take me a... <laughs> It's going to take me a few days to process this interview, as I'm sure our listeners as well. So for those of you listening, don't, uh, don't be afraid to rewind it, listen again, um, and hit me up and let me know if you have any questions. And then hit John up. John, how can people find out, uh, get in contact with you? Yes, you can find me at uh, Um I'm on Fix Your Gut. Uh, my book is also offered on Amazon. Uh, you can search Fix Your Gut on YouTube, Fix Your Gut on Facebook, uh, Fix Your Gut on Twitter. Um, they should all Great. come up. And I definitely want to thank you, Ben, for having me on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple uh, podcast. I listen to you. I, I greatly appreciate your work. You're one of the few lone voices out there in, in, in natural medicine that tries to do a more combined approach, which is very rare. Very rare, Ben. And I want to you know, applaud you for that. Definitely, definitely applaud you for that. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to do my best and trying to give people the information that they need in a world saturated with uh, just so much conflicting information. And so I know, you know, you know how it is kind of sometimes we feel like we're on our own deserted island here uh, trying to uh, give people the right info. and, And with that is I'm just trying to bring people on like you that... I believe do have that information to share and are willing to share it freely. And so for those of you listening, one, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. Um, Two is if you feel like um, you are struggling with any of your uh, gut issues, if you feel like you have gut issues, please reach out to John. Obviously he's a wealth of knowledge and I'll have all of his contact info in the show notes below. John, we're going to have to do this again because I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Um, We could go on and on and on. So uh, we will do it again. Thank you very much, sir, for your time. I appreciate everything that you're doing and, and best of luck moving forward. Thank you, Ben, very much. Take care. Bye. Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.